Welcome to another episode of the PFC Podcast. The opinions you hear are ours and doesn't necessarily reflect anyone else's. Now on to the podcast. Hey, this is Doug with the Prolonged Field Care Working Group, and today we're going to be talking about uh, burn wound management and the new Joint Trauma System Prolonged Field Care Burn Clinical Practice Guideline. Okay, so one of the first principles of uh, burn management are that burns that are over 20% of total body surface area are potentially life-threatening. And the other burns that you need to take seriously in terms of management and because of complications and a need for expedient evacuation are any burns that involve the airway uh, or cause breathing problems and uh, then any burns that place uh, limbs at risk such as circumferential burns to the hand. Even in, uh, even in the ICU and in a trauma center, burns are pretty complex things to manage. So if you have an opportunity to engage experts by telemedicine, you should do so early. Uh, there are also really visual problems and the ability to take a picture and send it to an expert in burns uh, can really help both engaging the burn size and severity and then in the management of that burns. Um, for those of you in the U.S. Department of Defense, um, the Burn Center at the U.S. Army Institute for Surgical Research, uh, or ISR, have dedicated numbers that you can call for burn teleconsultation, and, to, and these will actually also help you arrange evacuation of seriously burned casualties, uh, and they're shown in the slides, um, both the numbers and a direct email. So. The first thing to address when you're looking at burns, uh, the first question to answer yes or no is, is there airway involvement uh, or threatened airway involvement? There, and, and the big reason to do this with burns is that what can look like a benign airway early on uh, can become to threaten airway later as you resuscitate the patient and uh, the airway swells. Patients uh, that are at risk for an inhalation injury or those with any evidence of burning around the mouth or singeing around the mouth, or if they have symptoms when you first come on them, and you know some of the common symptoms are going to be coughing, respiratory distress, so they're uh, having difficulty breathing, they're tachypnic, any strider, which is wheezing with in- inspiration, uh, is a pretty serious sign, and uh, these are in in general in prolonged field care we talk about you know, being careful before placing a definitive airway because placing a definitive airway involves a lot of management, right? You have to have somebody bag. You certainly have to have some medications to keep the patient comfortable. Uh, and so it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. But in burns, it's better to err on the side of caution and take an airway early uh, because uh, later on you may not be able to place an advanced airway because of the swelling, both, both around the, the neck if you're placing a crike um, or in the larynx if you're placing an endotracheal tube. You'll see on the slide kind of a minimum better best recommendation for airways. I would caveat this by saying um, our, our recommendation is always to place the advanced airway that you feel best trained uh, to, to get in place without complication. And so if you're more comfortable placing a crike, then place a crike. If you're more comfortable placing an endotracheal tube, place an endotracheal tube. A couple of things regarding endotracheal tubes in prolonged field care in general, and then one in burns specifically. In general, um, you're going to 
need more medications to sedate your patient with an endotracheal tube because of the stimulation of the gag reflex. So before you place one, make sure that you have the medications to support keeping your patient comfortable. For burn stuff in um, specifically, uh, because the airway can become pretty rapidly distorted with swelling um, and even with debris that's been inhaled, uh, having, having a bougie along with you uh, so you can um, have a little bit more confidence that the uh, airway is going in the trachea the first time uh, can be a real lifesaver uh, um, and a real asset. And bougies are you know, they're light, they're pretty poor, they're really portable. And I think if, if endotracheal tube is going to be an option in your airway algorithm, um, I would almost recommend always carrying a bougie in a prolonged field care environment. Here's a slide that kind of shows uh, how distended uh, and distorted an airway can become. This is a patient who's had an endotracheal tube placed in a significant amount of uh, resuscitation that's caused swelling of the face and the neck, and that would be really, really difficult uh, endotracheal tube to place and a really difficult crike to place because the landmarks are, are distorted to the point of potentially not even being there. Uh, once uh, you've made a decision whether uh, the airway is, is, is protected or needs to be protected and moved on from protecting it if you need to, the next step is to ass assess both the burn size and severity because this is gonna guide um, both the risk to your patient and the resuscitation. And you know there are all sorts of charts uh, within, um, that show the rule of nines and how to calculate burn size. This is, some, this is one of the areas in burn patient treatment where we see you know, quite a bit of um, um, difficulty getting it right uh, and, and engaging a more trained provider or additional providers can really be helpful. In general, people tend to overestimate burn size and overestimate burn severity. Uh, and the so what of that is that, that patients can be receive too much fluid and too much resuscitation, and there are complications to that, as we'll talk about a little later on. So if you're on your own, um, you know, you have to rely on your charts and save these as a PDF or something uh, on your smartphone or your tablet. Uh, if you have the chance to take good photographs and send them to a burn center, they can be super helpful getting the calculation right the first time. Um, and if that's going to be delayed, you know, make your best estimate, start your resuscitation, and then get consultation when you can. And you may wind up realizing that you can revise your resuscitation needs downward based on a, a downward revision of your burn size. So severities, um, you know, we talk about first degree, second degree, third degree burns. That's kind of the popular or the common terms. You know, what we're really talking about are superficial partial thickness and full thickness burns. There are all sorts of terms out there. What's important to know, I think, a couple things that are important to know about burn severity is, uh, number one, second-degree burns or partial thickness burns are the ones that are going to hurt, right? And so if you have a significant amount of partial thickness burns, you're probably going to have a significant amount of uh, pain uh, medicine requirement or analgesia requirement because uh, the nerve endings are exposed uh, but not burned. And, uh, and their nerve endings terminate in the skin, and that's why you know, wounds to the skin can hurt a lot. Full thickness burns, uh, the nerve endings have been destroyed, and they actually don't hurt that much. Your pain requirements shouldn't be that high. Burns around the fingers and the hand are particularly concerning. Uh, the, you know, the hands are, uh, have a lot of nerves and um, obviously a lot of function, and any 
circumferential burn, partial thickness, or I'm sorry, full thickness burn around the hand will probably need escherotomies. That's another point to make about, um, about burn severity as well, is that only full thickness burns will re could require escherotomies. Partial thickness burns are flexible enough that they would not require an escherotomy. Um, so you'd be, you'd be looking to do escherotomies on full thickness burns that are compromising some sort of, of um, physiologic performance, and we'll talk about that in a minute. On the right in this slide, you see this is a, a, a young child who's probably had a scalding injury, and you can see the full gamut of, um, of superficial, uh, deep, uh, and intermediate thickness, uh, partial thickness burns. Here are a couple of pictures of a patient with full thickness burns uh, on the upper extremity that have required escherotomies both to the upper arm, the lower arm, and the back of the hand uh, to relieve pressure and the risk for compartment syndrome. Uh, and another uh, picture of a, a blast patient who's got extensive um, partial and full thickness burns would probably be requiring escherotomies of both of these lower extremities and most likely the thorax if you can see uh, how deeply scarred that thorax is in order to allow the patient to ventilate to relax to relax and ventilate once you've calculated your burn size and severity um, or the ha hallmarks of burn care are volume resuscitation for fluid that is lost through um, the loss of barrier protection and uh, infection uh, prevention. So we recommend the, you know, there are all sorts of formulas out there for burn resuscitation in terms of how much fluid you're going to get over how much time. The um, C clinical practice guideline, the CPG, uh, recommends using the rule of tens mainly because it's pretty easy math, right? It's the, the burn size in percent times 10 is your initial fluid rate per hour. So if you have a 40% partial or full thickness burn um, times 10, 40 times 10 is 400, 400 cc's an hour of a crystal of a crystallite, preferably Ringer's lactate or um, plasmolite, is going to be your initial uh, fluid rate. The main thing to talk about when we talk about fluid resuscitation is that all of these formulas are giving you an initial starting point and, and some of them maybe a, some catch up for um, the amount of time the patient has been under resuscitated, but they are not a goal to be hit over 24 hours, right? So if the Parkland formula says, you know, you need to give your patient 12 liters, six liters in the first 12 hours and six over the, you know, the next 12 hours. The goal isn't to give the patient 12, 12 liters. The goal is to start, assess their responsiveness, um, and then either increase if they're not responsive and back off if they are responsive. And the responsiveness that we're looking to assess is urine output, right? So I think I get to that in a couple of slides. But it's really important to know that all of these recommendations are just a start point and that uh, along with, basically the reflex should be as you start fluids, you should be putting in a Foley catheter so you can monitor the response to fluids. And that's really, that's, that's really the muscle memory that you should ingrain for um, burn resuscitation. There are other um, 
ways to resuscitate burn sh uh, um, food losses due to burn or burn shock. Um, there's data that support enteral um, fluid replacement, both by nasogastric tube and orally. Um, in prolonged field care, we don't recommend routinely putting in a nasogastric tube because you don't have a chest x-ray uh, to confirm its placement and the risk of a misplaced nasogastric tube is that it goes, you know, not down the esophagus but down the trachea and into the lungs. And if you think resuscitating a burn patient is tough, um, try resuscitating a burn patient who's gotten a whole slug of fluid down in their lungs. So if they're awake and alert and can take uh, oral water or, or oral fluid, um, then then oral resuscitation for burns up to about 30% has um, been documented. And if they're not, rectal fluid would be our recommendation for an alternative enteral fluid administration route in prolonged field care setting because you're not going to run into the same complication putting in a rectal tube as you would putting in a nasogastric tube. A super important point is that the fluid that you give orally or rectally has to be an electrolyte solution. It cannot be free water. Plain water, given in the volumes that it takes to resuscitate um, a burn, will cause a life-threatening drop in your serum sodium. It will dilute your sodium down to the point where your patient can have seizures, go into a coma, and die from cerebral edema because the water in the brain cells will be um, so much saltier than the water in the, um, in the bloodstream that water will diffuse out of the bloodstream into the brain cells down the um, sodium gradient causing swelling of the brain cells, cerebral edema, and death. Uh, so it's not difficult uh, to do an electrolyte solution. You can use a World Health Organization solution. You can add a quarter teaspoon of sodium and a quarter teaspoon of baking soda to a liter of or a quart of Gatorade. If you don't have the um, bicarbonate or uh, the baking soda, you can just double that and add half a teaspoon of sodium uh, and give that Interestingly, our colleagues at the burn unit and the Institute for Surgical Research down in San Antonio are um, giving some of their burn patients oral resuscitation uh, preferentially over IV because it's thought that it would stimulate the um, motility of the gut and avoid the, the ileus or the um, paralysis of the gut that can happen in shock. And they're getting some decent results out of there. So this might be a case where um, prolonged field care uh, research and clinical practice guideline development is informing our clinical colleagues. Uh, more to come on that, um, probably in a future podcast or in a Q&A about, about burns. The main monitoring that you need to be done with burn patients are, as with any critically ill or critically injured patient, on um, the vital signs and exam monitoring to spot you know, decompensation because these are patients who are at risk of decompensating from hypovolemic shock. Uh, and also, uh, but most importantly in these guys, urine output to assess their responsiveness to, to your fluid uh, resuscitation to see if it's adequate and, and you can back off uh, or inadequate and you need to bump it up. Um, so we kind of talked about the importance of placing a Foley catheter early. Your urine output goals really don't have to be all that high and burned. 30 to 50 cc's an hour is fine. Um, and better really to have a lower urine output and use less fluid and have less risk of the complications of uh, compartment syndrome from over-resuscitation or pulmonary edema from over-resuscitation 
than to give them and then to shoot for a higher urine output um, and court those risks, at least in the PFC setting. Um, the one caveat to that is electrical injury. So if somebody's burned because they've had a major electrocution, there you've got really a component of crush injury and rhabdomyolysis that's, that's complicating the picture. So not only do you have this, the skin losses and the plasma losses through the skin that you do in burns, you have the muscle injury and the um, myoglobin release that can clog the kidneys, causing kidney failure and even permanent injury that you do in crush or rhabdo, traumatic rhabdomyolysis, which is you know, the, the topic of, of another clinical practice guideline. So in those cases, you treat the rhabdo component of the burn with, by targeting a higher urine output of you know, about 100 cc's an hour. Not quite as high as, as we recommend in pure crush, you know, of 200 cc's an hour, but certainly higher than we do in burn. Um, so for extremity burns, kind of talked about a little bit already, that they're vulnerable um, to compartment syndrome from circumferential full thickness or third degree burns. And so um, there are a bunch of ways you can, you can treat that. You know, at a, at a very minimum, you can elevate the heart, uh, the extremity above the level of the heart uh, to kind of um, uh, drain some of that swelling. You can cool them gently, uh, you know, not direct ice, but at least, uh, you know, leave the extremity out uh, and cooling, um, which is, you know, kind of ironic given that we want to keep burn patients warm in general because of the loss of skin and barrier protection and the risk of hypothermia. But if you can locally um, expose uh, a threatened extremity um, and keep it cool and the temp patient's temperature normal, um, then do that. If you can't, um, you know, the tiebreaker goes to the overall body temperature, right? Because a lot of our burn patients are polytrauma patients and hypothermia is the enemy of coagulation and trauma. So better to um, keep the extremity warm, to keep the whole body uh, warm, and, uh, and deal with the risk of compartment syndrome with escherotomies. So, um, you know, escherotomies are basically um, following, uh, following the lines of flexion around all major joints. Uh, here's a, a gross schematic uh, on this slide. And then also another place that we worry about um, uh, compartment syndrome a lot is thoracic um, impeding the ability of the lungs to inflate and absorb air. And if you have a patient, usually a patient with thoracic burns that are that significant is probably going to have some facial involvement and they're going to be intubated or have a crike and be on a ventilator. And what you'll notice as a potential warning sign is the pressure alarms start going up on the ventilator um, as it becomes harder and harder to expand that chest wall against the rigidity of a third degree burn and then you would perform uh, escherotomy. And there's some diagrams that are shown uh, in the slides that'll accompany this talk on the website. In the, in the hospital, we perform escherotomies with, um, with bovies, with electrocautery, so the bleeding is relatively well controlled. You probably won't have that in the field. Um, and so uh, the next slide shows uh, an escherotomy that's performed with a scalpel. And the point of this is to show that it bleeds a lot more. Um, Will you lose enough blood that you compound the hypovolemia? Potentially, um, so that's a consideration, but you know, the, limb, the limb wins out over that and you just have to up your resuscitation. Uh, what I would say is that, that this should be a two-person operation if you can get a second pair of clean hands in there uh, to go behind uh, the, the 
medic with a scalpel or the, the person with a scalpel um, with some hemostatic dressing and just kind of have that in a ribbon packing the wound um, as, they, as they perform the escharotomy. And that should generally control the bleeding relatively well, uh, especially if you don't have any acidosis or hypothermia. And then you may have to change that dressing once or twice uh, when it soaks through, but eventually that'll be controlled. But just be, I guess the, the main takeaway for that is be prepared for a significant amount of capillary bleeding with an escharotomy done with a scalpel uh, and have a plan in place to manage it as it happens. So, um, like I said earlier, burns can hurt or they can't hurt, depending on how severe they are. And ironically, the more severe the burn is, the less it's going to hurt. But uh, significant second degree or partial thickness burns are going to, uh, they definitely fit that, um, that definition of complex analgesia or complex pain in the um, pain and analgesia um, or pain and sedation um, clinical practice guideline. And, and will demand, will chew through a lot of your, your pain supplies uh, if you don't plan it. This is, these would definitely be people that I would, I would try to get on a drip earlier so you can get them on a plane of, of analgesia and keep them there uh, and knowing that you may have to bump them with almost procedural doses of, well, in fact, we'll get to this in, in infection control, but you will have to bump them with procedural doses of ketamine when you do anything like um, cleaning or debriding um, the burns. But put them on a drip early, a ketamine drip, um, some, some bumps of, uh, of midazolam, you know, every 30 to 60 minutes uh, if they're having you know, delirium side effects, which are more common than not. Um, that would be my plan, my recommended plan for pain management in these these patients. Interestingly, even though infection is really one of the biggest risk of burns, um, there's no nothing in the literature and nothing in in the guidelines for really advanced burn centers that says go ahead and put them on prophylactic antibiotics. Um, infection control and burn management is really all about source control. So it's um, get them clean keep them clean, put a barrier between the skin and a contaminated environment. So in a PFC situation, um, you know, your optimum burn care is going to be to put on, you know, some sort of a burn, burn care dressing um, like uh, silvadine, uh, sulfamylon, uh, or um, uh, silvalon uh, dressing um, after cleaning the wound thoroughly. And so to clean the wound, uh, we recommend something like Hibiclens, which is um, chlorhexidine. Um, even soap and water is better than nothing. Um, but, in, but know that this, is gonna, this can cause a significant amount of pain and you're gonna need you know, that two, you know, two milligrams per kilogram of body weight uh, ketamine dose. So you know, for instance, 200 milligrams of ketamine every 30 minutes or so in a 100 kilogram guy. Um, until the procedure is complete. You really need to put them on a, almost like a Tiva plane to do this. If you can't do it because, you know, your environment's just too dirty, that getting them clean isn't going to really help, or you don't have the time, or you don't have the supplies, or you don't have the dressings, um, just covering them with a clean sheet is a lot better than nothing um, and, and can be good for up to about 24 hours, some of our burn colleagues tell us. Um, if you're putting dressings on, you know, that are non-burn dressings, we recommend dry gauze uh, and not wet gauze. Um, wet gauze isn't really adding anything to um, 
the infection control. It's not. It's going to be no easier to take off when they eventually have to take the dressings down in a, in a burn unit or a, a field hospital than a dry dressing, and it is going to put you at risk of losing a lot more heat through evaporation. So, um, dry gauze and is better is better than nothing. So, sort of you know, clean sheet, dry gauze, um, uh, uh, cleaning, uh, debriding, and uh, burn dressing are sort of minimum, better, best. The use of IV or oral antibiotics, like I said, is not primary for prevention in burn care. However, if you, if you have a polytrauma patient with other dirty injuries, you know, um, open fractures, uh, open wounds, you know, you then default to the combat antibiotics, which is probably your ertapenem uh, first line um, for that. And then in, if it's a pure burn patient, you would, we would hold off on antibiotics until they show signs of sepsis. So spiking fevers, um, signs of infection around the burn, you know, redness, streaking, et cetera, at that point is when you would use your antibiotics. Hopefully they're out of your care, yeah. care by then, um, but if you're sitting on them long enough or if it's a local national that you've decided to treat and take through this whole process, um, you would wait to give systemic antibiotics until you see signs of, um, of local infection or sepsis. That's kind of, you know, summarizes the, the key principles of burn care, you know, airway, burn size estimation uh, and severity, which is going to drive resuscitation, which is next, which is going to drive infection control, which is next, you know, being vigilant for uh, the risk of compartment syndrome in the extremities um, as well. Burn resuscitation flow sheets at the end of the slide talk and a, and a cheat sheet, which you can refer to. The flow sheets are nice to have, but not a need to have. You can do a perfectly fine um, job documenting your resuscitation on the PFC um, flow sheet that's on, that's on the website um, because it does have a place for pretty much all your ins and outs, all your fluids, and, um, and, and all your analgesics, and it gets it on one sheet rather than splitting it up onto two. So like I said, nice to have, but not need to have for the resuscitation flow sheet. Um, one last thing I'll sort of talk about with resuscitation is if you're, if you're um, giving a lot of fluid and you notice you're getting complications, you know, pulmonary edema or abdominal compartment syndrome, and I'll talk about that in a second as a, as a really rare but feared complication of over-resuscitation, you can switch to more concentrated solution. Uh, and the, the thing that we normally switch to in a burn ICU is, is uh, albumin. So if you can get 5% albumin, um, you know, you can pretty much cut your, your fluid in half, right? Going from a liter down to 500 cc's. Um, plasma is good if you can, if you can get either frozen plasma uh, or, or freeze-dried plasma is also an acceptable substitute um, for what we call a volume-limited burn resuscitation. And then finally, I'll just mention abdominal compartment syndrome because it is a feared complication, and, and this happens when uh, a severely burned patient, and here we're usually talking 60% plus, has gotten so much fluid that they have third space into the abdomen to the point that all the soft tissue edema in, in the small bowel and the large bowel, uh, potentially compressed by third degree burn over the, um, over the abdomen itself, making that abdominal wall stiff, then that pressure goes inward, and the, the things that it compresses are, um, you know, venous return to the heart, 
um, blood supply to the kidneys. So your urine output drops off, your blood pressure goes down. Um, this is really something in a PFC environment that is best avoided and not treated because the, the treatment is, um, you can decompress this with a nasogastric tube, maybe. Um, certainly if there's any air in the stomach that's complicating that and, and, and that can be decompressed, that can help. And that would probably be, be the one time I would recommend um, taking the risk of putting an NG tube into a patient in a PFC environment without ability to document its placement. Because the only other thing you do is you do a laparotomy and you open up and basically all of that pressure just comes out through the laparotomy incision, which is not something you're going to be able to do. So that's, that's kind of it for an overview of burn resuscitation and the, and the um, joint trauma systems uh, burn clinical practice guideline. Um, I hope uh, you enjoyed this talk and look forward to having a Q&A with Dennis about this and uh, some other subject matter experts in the future. That's another one for the books. Now take the challenge and go to the website, www.prolongedfieldcare.org, and answer the questions linked to the podcast. Test your knowledge on the scenario and keep an eye out for the roundtable talk where we answer the questions and find out what an expert would do in the exact same scenario. I'm Dennis with the Prolonged Field Care Podcast, out.